Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hi, I'm Sarah Smith. If you're the type of person that goes to liberty as other people would go on safari, and the fact that John Lewis doesn't have a funeral service makes you fret, Sarah Smith cleaning cloths are for you. Sarah Smith, available from Sainsbury's for the Posher Washer. Proud sponsors of Dumpty Dum. This week's show is sponsored by Tracy Shevin, who is raising funds for her local cancer unit in Stoke-on-Trent. Her husband Andrew was diagnosed nearly five years ago with stage four cancer. He's been lucky to survive these five years, However, unfortunately, the cancer has spread further, and he's got to the stage where treatment wouldn't be effective. During the five years, Andrew has had several chemotherapy treatments, as well as operations. He's received fabulous treatment by the staff at the hospital, and Tracy would like to give something back to the unit, maybe a comfy chair for a patient or their relatives. If you'd like to donate to her fund, the page is justgiving.com slash tracy dash Chevin. That's C-H-E-V-I-N. Thank you from Tracy Chevin with Dumpty Dog Nancy and Dumpty Mog Poosh. was which soap 
was rocked, recently rocked by its first murder in 65 years. Well, having heard last night's episode before I went to the quiz, I was very indignant and I said, they can't ask that. Um, and everybody around me was like, why, 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 why can't they ask it? The guy's not dead. The guy's not dead. Anyway, the people around me and my team go, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. They can't ask that. So, um, anyway, um, the guy that was sat next to me said to me, do you want me to take you down and you can talk to her? I said, yes, I do. Anyway, I was so incensed um, by the inaccuracy of this question that I I nearly tripped down a step that was actually um, where we were sat. We were sat like up up one step and I forgot about it. And I just got reminded in time anyway. I walked over and I said to the guy, "Um, you can't have that question. And he was like, why? And I said, well, because the guy's not dead. So technically... It's not murder. So he said, oh, well, that's what it says here. So I said, well, you can't have it because it isn't true. So we had to rephrase the question. Anyway, (laughs) the upshot of it was we actually won the quiz. (laughs) But I just thought I would um, tell you that tale. Okay, thanks very much. Bye. This is Dum Dum, the show about the reality docudrama that is centred on Ambridge in the heart of the Midlands. On the picturesque shepherd's hut, that is Roy Field Brown. And with me are the smoky shack on wheels, that is... Lucy Freeman. And we're joined by the purveyor of milk to all shacks all over Borchester, Mike Tucker, a.k.a... Terry Malloy. Yeah, hey! And the last <laughs> part of our Snell Betty Treon fantasy is you folks. Now, today's Dum Dum is from the Mid-Sussex Brass Band... Lucy, isn't that such a good one? It's lovely. It is. It I is. really love that. Uh, we don't play that one enough. Uh, we're going to bore you with it, folks. It's going to come back and come back. It's going to be recurring. Uh, so be warned. But Lucy, if mm-hmm. a listener would like to send in a dum-de-dum, so they can become dum-de-dum of the week, how can they do that? Uh, if you would like to sing us a dumpty dum, give us a plot prediction or have a go in a limo because no one else wants it. Ring us on 02030313105 or leave us a message on Speakpipe. Thanks to lovely Shambridges, to Cosmo for his podcast roundups, and to Sarah Smith for sponsoring us. Um, thanks also to Derek for the loan of the back bedroom. Derek's working with Pat and Tony as he's actually a prison visitor at the women's prison. He's uh, not popular with all the inmates, but he always goes down well with Big Sheila in C Block. <laughs> Remember Prisoner Cell Block H? <laughs> you what? Do you remember Prisoner Cell Block H? I do. That was terrifying. We used to watch that when we were students. I always <laughs> wanted to be in the Prisoner Cell Block H. I thought it was going to be great. Uh-huh. <clears throat> of mine, uh, Virginia Hay, who was in Mad Max 2, mm-hmm. The Warrior Woman. She was in Prisoner Cell Block H in the early days. She was, you know, young and vivacious then. But uh, yeah, oh God, I loved Prisoner Cell Block H. I was addicted to it. Ever been addicted to or I've ever really watched Really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, so now, it, is she just a little bit older but still vivacious? I hope you're going to say yes. Oh, very much so, yes. Good, yes. <laughs> good, good, good. My what? wife in a cast, I, uh, web series I did last year, yeah, yeah. Look at you. You're, you're a proper thesp, aren't you? Yes. Well, I can't, you can't be arrested for it anymore, you know, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> On this week's episode, we have calls from Dusty Substances, who's taking a deep breath. Bly Spirit, 
who wants Kirsty on her team. Yokel Bear, who loves Neil getting whipped about eggs. Susie, who wants to join Carol's coven. Martin, who's hoping for a few good men. Gillian, who has a recommendation. Witherspoon, who's missing Helen. Lillian, who's been down the pub. And we have an interview with a forensic expert from CSI Borsitcher, who fleshes out the blood patterns in Blossom Hill Cottage. But first, before all the juicy calls... It's Lucy V. Freeman's week in Ambridge. David had a twisted uterus. That's not nice. This necessitated Alistair coming back from the dead or the betting shop, depending on where you think he went. Anyway, he remained firmly mute, so we will never know. Bert is cracking on with the egg mobile. The fair buttocks don't even want the damn thing now, but 80-year-old Bert's not got anything else on. Just doing his garden, his job at Brookfield and Carol Toboggan's garden, so I don't know why he doesn't take on a paper round, really. I'm beginning to think that Pat is actually in league with Rob, as no one's doing a better hatchet job on poor Helen than her own mum. Well, to be honest, officer, she was a bit of a nutter, yes. Uh, But this week has suddenly revealed the point of Carol Toboggan. No, Carol Toboggan is not just a way of reviving the career of a great British dramatic actress and introducing a ridiculous euthanasia whodunit. She is a mother. She is the mother of a barrister who represents domestic violence cases. And Hootie Jill suddenly remembered she was her goddaughter. And this is where it gets really convenient. She practices in Birmingham. Who would have thought that? Anyway, that kept Hootie Jill quiet for a bit until she returned like a chicken to its own pastured egg to her conviction that what everyone wants all the time is a lovely family party. This is surely the triumph of hope over experience. (laughs) She must be thinking, look, I'm knocking 80. Surely we can have one sodding family party that doesn't end in everyone either making rubbish excuses and not showing up at all or a huge family row. So we'll look forward to an episode of shouting, Ruth smashing up Jill's writing desk and shouting, that's for me, mother. Kenton weeping and Elizabeth breaking a plate of lemon drizzle cake over David's head. Hurrah! (laughs) There was another show of unity over at Bridge Farm where Tom punched Jazza in the mush for making derogatory remarks about Helen. Any normal woman, he was saying. Jazza, I'm not sure you know a great deal about normal women, as any of the ones that actually end up with you are either blind drunk or absolutely desperate. So Jazza has now moved downwind of Bridge Farm and its reheated lentil rissoles and moved in with Fallon and Harassment Burns. And Sausage Boy is actually becoming a bit of a hero and now I quite like him. Lillian, Elizabeth and Shula went to the Borchester Businesswoman of the Year Awards and Elizabeth was runner-up in Woman Most Likely To. They all had a lovely giggle (laughs) together about the fact that there were women there who were scaffolders. How funny! And working class, look, there are women actually doing proper jobs and not messing around with cupcakes. And look, Emma knows them. That's even funnier. Anyway, inevitably the ruddy cupcake woman won, but I do hope the Sheeny sisters took Shula outside and smashed her teeth in with a scaffolding pole. (laughs) Something I didn't understand yet again. When this Woman of the Year thing was introduced, Lillian behaved as if she was vaguely associated with this Woman of the Year thing, and she'd heard about it on the grapevine. And then it turns out she's actually comparing the damn thing. Unless, of course, she'd been on the Jacob's Creek again and just staggered up on stage and grabbed the mic. She was comparing it while being related to the runner-up and being paid by a company that was nominated. I think the Sheeny sisters probably need to have a word there, too. 
Pip mm. was going around Ambridge asking people if she could borrow their cows as she wants to do a flash mob experiment. She followed David around saying, please, can I borrow some cows, Daddy? I will look after them and put them back where I got them from. Just some, half a cow. So he agreed, once again without checking with Ruth, so she'll be on the next plane to Bolivia. Then Pip said solemnly to David that she couldn't ask Tony if she could borrow some of his cows because of Helen. And then she went over there anyway, put her head on one side and said, is there anything I can do? Neil was being a guinea pig for Susan, sniffing about, going weep, 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 weep and nibbling. And when he'd finished that, she asked him to test the fair buttocks pastured eggs. He couldn't tell the difference, <laughs> unsurprisingly, but he was outraged that J.R. Archer was running his egg enterprise at South Fork while also running a rival enterprise. Damn it, Josh, said Neil, knocking back his bourbon and pushing back his Stetson. Just whose side are you on? Adam has asked Ed if he wants to learn something about no-till cropping. That's when you get walloped with a crop, but you don't have to pay for it, I'm pretty sure. Brian is a big fan. Adam was very keen that Ed went with him to watch it happening, but Ed said, no, thank you, I'm washing my ferrets. So Adam asked David <laughs> if he would play with him instead, and David said, would, I would like to come and watch cropping, thank you very much, can we have Nando's for lunch? And, damn it, Rob is out of danger until the surgeon discovers a Latvian agricultural worker jammed up his culvert anyway. <laughs> the end! <laughs> that was quite good this week, Freeman. <sighs> uh, that was actually quite good this week, Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> I, it gave me pause to, to laugh on more than one occasion. Well done. <sighs> Thanking you. <laughs> um, Terry, yeah. mm? I know you're a devotee. Of uh, mm. Lucy's monologues, aren't you? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't sound too sure. Now, we've been doing this for 107 odd episodes. Um, yeah. Where do you think that ranks in the pantheon of Lucy monologues? Where would you put that? Oh, 107. Rick, 107th worst or best? Yeah. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> What a, dip- what a diplomatic answer. <laughs> Terry, yes. we are so glad to have you on the show. We've been threatening yes, this for are. some time, haven't we? we? You have indeed, yes. And we've had so many people saying, when are they coming back? What's happened to Mike and Mickey and Bethany? And, you know, we miss them and everything. I think particularly um, over the the uh, somewhat traumatic storyline of the last um, year, I think... Mike's kind of um, exasperated good humour has been sorely, sorely missed. Yes, I mean, he, he, I, he, does, he does drift in and out, but I'm sadly not saying anything. But, um, I, 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 you know, I hear he, he suddenly appears and has a chat with Roy and then disappears again. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, yes, I've just seen Dad. He's just said, where it is. Yeah. Um, no, it would be nice to, to come back. I mean, I, I, you, I cannot say anything. I mean, I have no idea. Um, it's it's in the in the lap of the gods, as they say. Mm. Um, how do you think uh, Mike is actually getting on in Birmingham? What's your gut feeling? Um, I, I think he's probably wandering aimlessly around Cannon Hill Park um, <laughs> into the lake and uh, muttering at the trees. Um, or hugging them because he probably misses them. Although, I mean, actually, Birmingham's got a lot of trees. It's the highest forested city in Europe. There you Did go. You know? There you go. I was just about to jump in and say that. Yeah, it is 
best foresters. I mean, I remember in the days of Pebble Mill would be on the, you know, on the top deck of the, in the uh, uh, in the canteen, looking out across towards the centre of Birmingham. You couldn't see anything except trees, you know, until you got to the city centre where you saw a few high rises. Mm. Um, yeah, it's very impressive in terms of trees. Um, uh, Terry, I mean, can, I live... can can I just jump in and warn you? I am the person that comes out with the facts on this show. Right. So well, you know, just be I, careful. I, you, you're stealing my thunder, sir. I, I've heard you're going across to, to some strange colonial place, so I thought I'm, you needed usurping, really. <laughs> <laughs> so it's still got more canals than Venice, and um, and I lived there for 29 years. Oh, did you? Whereabouts in Brum? Uh, Hansworth to begin with, mm-hmm. um, and then I moved to Moseley, <laughs> as all artists do, you know, take off our shoes and wander around bare feet and, you know... They say, you know, if you uh, if you were in the sixties, you had to live in Mosley. You know, it's, mm. it's a very eclectic little village. Um, yeah, I lived in Mosley from seventy three. Bought my first house in Mosley in seventy seven after I'd finished a tour of Godspell, and uh, I was there until ninety nine when I, I moved over to to Norfolk. You were in Godspell. Yes, in Limey. Yeah, that that's proper hippie stuff, isn't it? Oh, real hippie stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was a hippie. Lucy, yeah, yeah, I was a hippie. Did you have long hair? I had long hair. I had uh, tie-dye t-shirts and loon jeans, and I was ah! you know, thin as a rake, and and you know, and uh, you know, smoked a pipe and all sorts of silly things. You know, it was sort of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, as one does in those days. I mean, yeah, I'm a true child of the '60s. Me, I mean, yeah, that was my my, my era. I mean, I... You weren't in hair, were you? No, I was very nearly in hair. I, I auditioned for the <clears throat> second uh, change of cast, and uh, it was one of those things. Where it was you know a great queue of an open audition, great queue of people around the block, and you come on and you be, you know. And there's this great black stage with with lights in your face, you know. And they asked what you're going to sing, so I said I was going to sing the end of the first act, and um, so I started singing. And after about three lines, this voice from the darkness bellows, "Can you sing louder?" Well, I didn't have a microphone or anything, you know, and it was in this vast theatre. So I said, OK, so I started again after three lines. He said, can you not sing louder? So I actually walked to the front of the stage, peered into the darkness and said, pardon? <laughs> Next. <laughs> I, that was my uh, audition for hair. But, uh, now, I did something very similar in 76. I did a, a rock musical called Pilgrim, which was about Pilgrim's Progress. Um, which went up to the Edinburgh Festival. It was an official entry in the Edinburgh Festival with Paul Jones and Peter Straker and a lot of people from Hare, Paul Nicholas. Um, in fact, I I understudied Paul Nicholas as worldly Wiseman and talkative. And uh, that was great. I mean, that was like being in Hare, um, except it wasn't Hare. You know, we didn't have to take our clothes off either. But, so by that point, you're already Mike in The Archers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so what year did you start? Uh, Mike, 73, four, uh, late 73 into 74. Yeah. And, and tell us about that process. Tell us how you got the gig. I got a call from, and I've been doing some radio um, at Pebble Mill. I've been in Birmingham since about 1972, uh, working at the Midlands Arts Centre um, as an actor and as an associate director. And um, I got a call from from the Archer's office uh, saying that I'd been recommended to them by um, Roger, uh, by Anthony Cornish, who was then the head of radio drama. And would I come in and, and, and see them about a part? And so I went in that afternoon and uh, I was you know, met by um, the, the editor and uh, was introduced to Dan and Doris, uh, Tony Shrine, 
told me that there was this park called Mike Tucker and he was a cowman. He was going to you know, take over the herd of Brookfield Farm. And uh, so I did this scene and they kept on saying, can you do a bit slower? Can you just, you know, make the voice a bit deeper? And I'm doing that. And they came out and said, yeah, that's fine. What had actually happened was they'd already cast Mike Tucker with an actor called Gareth Armstrong. He, he'd got a job at the Radio Rep, so he wasn't going to be available. And he'd only done two episodes. So what they'd done was they decided to recast immediately with somebody else who sounded like him, which is the story of my life in, in the sit. I'm always taking <laughs> people. So, yeah, what they were actually doing was listening to the recording they'd already done with me alongside it, doing the same recording to see if it matched. Oh. And so I said, right, OK, can you start next Tuesday and your fee will be seven guineas? Because we were paid in guineas then. Wow. So, yeah, it was literally that. I went in, uh, did the audition, and I was taken on for five weeks. That's and not bad. Five was, weeks in 1973, was, <laughs> and you're still here. <laughs> that five-week gig seems to have been extended a bit, yeah. <laughs> or being in it for that long, because you, you don't notice the time. You don't notice no. Because you're only in it once a month if you're in it at all. You know, sometimes there are blocks of months when you're not in at all. Then you might have a rush of storyline. But I guess the time I really realised that time had gone by was when they auditioned Roy. And we had a group of people coming in and I was auditioning with them. And we'd gone through the day and some very good people. And finally, this guy came in with the last one, I think, actually, um, Ian Pepperell. And the minute he opened his mouth, the hairs ran up on the back of my neck because I thought, my God, that's me 20 years ago. Mm. You know, it really was woof, you know, and that, that's when I realised well, I've been in this for nearly 20 years, you know. Yeah, because your son's in it now, isn't he? Your son plays William, Will Grundy. Will Young, yeah. Young, yes, uh, he's been in it since he was seven. Yeah. I mean, that was pure chance as well because uh, I happened to be in one of the late episodes, 445 episodes, and... Um, I picked Philip up from school, from primary school, and I, I brought him in with me, and he just sat in the green room swinging around on chairs and scribbling on the old scripts. And uh, they had this this little line at the end of the episode we were doing um, where William says, hey, Dad, that man's got my ball. And they, they, they were going to record it later with, you know, some child they found in the school. But uh, they came out and said, wait a minute, William, uh, Philip's the sort of same age. Would you like to have a go at this line? I said, yeah, sure. I said, Philip, that's what you're going to do. He went in and did it. And they thought, oh, that's good. And came back a little later and said, yeah, we like that. Um, would you like to do another one? And slowly he was built into the programme. And, and yeah. I think he was one of the first children that's actually grown through as a because it was always usually either Judy would do the voices of children, you know, mm. uh, you know Shula and Kenton when they were little and, and um uh, yeah, so um, he was, I think, the very first child actor that moved through into teenager and beyond. Um, so he's been in it uh, yeah, since he was seven, and he's, what, 30, 32 now? So, uh, yeah, he's and a good... And he survived as well, because a lot of the ones that started off as child actors have, oh, yeah. have, have been deposed yeah. and replaced, haven't they? Yeah, but uh, no, he's, he's, he's hung on in there. Uh, it's the only acting he does. It's the only, the only job, the only gig he does. He... Uh, works does other things in Birmingham he lives in Birmingham well all my children live in Birmingham foolishly but there we go you know Boyfield's <laughs> <laughs> so moving out you know I mean there I we know. are well, we'll go downhill now. To, to be honest I moved out 20 years ago I've been in London for 20 years but anyway um Terry um mm. if you've been around uh the archers uh since the early 70s can you explain to us or maybe describe how the process of maybe putting the show together has changed? Um, I mean, from a production point of view, I, 
I don't believe it's changed that much. I mean, in terms of the long-term story planning meetings that they have, the monthly planning meetings that they have, the uh, uh, the advisors they have, like the agricultural advisor and various medical and legal advisors that they have in place. Um, I suppose the storylines have broadened because when I joined the Archers, there were, what, 15, 20 members of cast tops? That's it, you know. We're now into the 60s, um, you know, so, you know, in those days, the bread was, the butter was spread fairly thickly in terms of allocation of, of storylines and parts. Um, and obviously, as time has gone on and the, the, uh, the edges of the village have expanded in terms of other people coming in or be they temporary characters or permanent characters, I think, you know, that, that butter is spread slightly thinner. But the actual process of the making of it, I mean, the, the continuity was originally all done on, on index cards, you know. I mean, I've seen Camilla's, you know, old blocks of index cards where they would, you know, note down the fact that, you know, um, Phil Archer said he didn't like poached eggs in, you know, you know, 1957, and, you know, so that they don't make the mistake of giving him a poached egg in 1994 because somebody will write in and say, oh, Phil Archer doesn't like poached eggs. He said so in 1957. So that that level... <laughs> a man can change, surely. <laughs> oh, oh, well, who knows? Not in... Not in <laughs> no, no. Certain listeners know nothing changes there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that level of detail, I think, has always been there. And that... Um, that you know, desire to uh, produce what I call a an accurate uh, replication of what happens in a rural community at any particular one time, um, I think has always been there and has been one of the reasons for its long-lasting long success. It, it has always accurately reflected the reality of, a, of a, uh, living in a, in a rural community. Um, and long may it continue. Um, we had a call from one of our, our, our regular caller inners and occasional uh, hosts Andrew Horn. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Andrew Horn here. I have a question for Terry. We've mentioned several times on Dumpty Dum that uh, the character of Mike went through quite a development arc over the years, from being quite a firebrand into to the character that uh, he became when you went off to when he went off to Birmingham. I just wondered what your view was of how the character had developed, how much say you had in it, and where you think the the character of Mike is at the moment. That's it, really. Thank you. Yeah, Mike was a raging, you know, union man when he came in. Yeah. One of one of my first interactions with the public um, after he arrived, and I was on tour with with a, with a uh, Prospect Theatre up in up in, uh, in Northumberland, and uh, we had a play goers party after the show, and I was drinking a pint of beer at the, at the bar, and this. Very lovely little old lady came up to me and, and said, hello. She said, are you Terry Malloy? I said, yes, I am. She said, do you play Mike Tucker in the Archers? I said, yes, yes, I do. And suddenly I was hit round the head by a handbag. <laughs> about being such a swine to build a baby little socialist you, you know. And she asked me if I was Terry Malloy first, you know, and I play Mike Tucker. Doesn't that give you a clue? You know, uh, certainly not a new man. I mean, he was. Yeah, he, he's always only opened his mouth to change feet. I mean, that's been mm. a part of his nature and his bullishness and, and belief that, you know, you do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay and anything else is, is not, not on. Um, and women should know their place, you know. Um, 
But that changed, obviously, with the careful tending of Betty over the years. Betty's death, I think, was a was a change for him because he was mm. there was that that wind change in him as a man in realizing what he'd lost and mm. how he could have been better as a husband to Betty, which I, I found really lovely to be able to to address and play uh, in during that period. So um, talking about loss, there, Terry, when you yeah. lost your eye, right? You as an actor, how, how do you, you then change your performances, sir, considering that you're, you're acting primarily through the medium of radio? So tell us about the loss of that eye, then actually how, how that affected your characterization of Mike moving forward. Uh, well, there were two things. I mean, uh, first of all, I wore an eye patch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did actually wear an eye patch when we did events out. I mean, I had an eye patch which I, I, I then covered in, in, I had a gold bottle top. Uh, I had <laughs> top thing, I'd wear at different events. So the gold bottle top was for, you know, the Stoney, the Royal Agricultural Show, you know. Uh, I just thought it was a rather nice joke I liked. In terms of Mike, I mean, there, there was, uh, it, it, I think it affected his temper um, and, you know, led to his depression and all of that thing. And uh, that had an input into how he saw or only partly saw uh, life around him and how you know things had moved out uh, moved on so uh, yeah I mean vocally it's not going to change anything um, it's got to be an inner intention in what what, what you say how you say things and um, you know it's one of those things you sometimes forget about and occasionally the script writers will write something in that you can't do that because you've only got one eye but um, it doesn't usually stop you doing anything I mean like he doesn't play cricket anymore because he's only got one eye he can't see the ball coming um, keeps getting hit on my bad eye, you know. Can you bowl on my... We've had, uh, we have another caller, Yokel Bear. You've got Terry Malloy on. That's brilliant. I love Terry. Doing a total fanboy thing here. I really wish Mike would come back. I miss Mike. I miss Vicky. Oh, just, you know, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. But I'm a big fan of another thing that he does which is a radio um, series called The Scarifiers. Um, And it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. And Terry plays Professor Dunning, who's just brilliant. So here's my request to Terry. Please, 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 just for me, Yoko Bear, can you say, oh, crumbs, as Professor Dunning? Because it would make my week... Is a is a is a is a, a writer of ghost stories and a, <laughs> a bit of an academic and eccentric and <laughs> whenever anything goes wrong he sort of goes oh, crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that scary fires is great. I mean, it's a it's a series we started doing nine years ago with uh, myself and Nick Courtney um, from Doctor Who. Nothing to do with Doctor Who. It was. Uh, um, it was set in the 1930s, or is set in the 1930s, and it revolves around this octogenarian copper who goes around hitting people, and uh, this sort of bizarre uh, ghost story writer, Prof Dunning. Um, so you had D.I. Lionheart and, and Professor Dunning, who become MI13, and they solve <laughs> um, psychic problems. So it's a bit like X-Files meets Dick Barton. Because when you think about it, you've been on two of the BBC's flagship shows. I mean, you're in Doctor Who. And you're in the Archers, and you can't get much bigger kind of cultural impact than those two, really, can you? No, I mean somebody said to me a few years ago, um, you do realise you've been in two of the most iconic programmes in the last yeah. 
I said, hey, less of the last century, will you? Um, <laughs> again, Doctor Who, I took over from somebody else. Michael Wisher, who created the character of Davros, um, uh, creator of the, uh, of the Daleks, um, wasn't available. The BBC actually had a strike. All the productions were moved forward by a month or backwards by a month. And when they came to remount Resurrection of the Daleks, which Michael was meant to be doing, the director who was going to do it had moved on to another job. And Michael was on tour in Australia. A new director had been cut, was brought in who I just finished working with on a TV series down in Southampton. And uh, he rang me up because he knew I could do, you know, uh, impersonations, voices and things like that. And he said, uh, would you like to take this on? And uh, who's going to say no? I came into it again, thinking it was just going to be for the one gig. But they liked what I did, and I came back, you know, right through to the end of the classic series uh, when Mr. Grade, may he rot in hell. Um, uh, <laughs> You're not bitter, though, are you, Terry? You're not bitter. <laughs> oh, excuse me, I've got dogs. Hey, shush. Uh, yeah, um, yes. Yeah, so, so I thought that was the end of it, you know. But then Big Finish, the um, uh, audio company, started making. Um, um, uh, new versions of Doctor Who uh, audio adventures and, uh, uh, and and it's taken off from there and I've, I've done that for us now about what, 14, 15 times plus a stage play so uh, yeah Have you got a small dog savaging your ankles? I've got two small dogs not savaging my ankles but making it plain that people shouldn't be allowed to walk past our cottage uh, Are they terriers? Yeah, they're, they're very uh -huh. good I mean if they did actually get out they'd lick people to death but um, <laughs> yeah, they're they both Terrifically scary, I have to say. What did you feel about sort of? We all thought that the Bethany storyline was was very nicely handled with with Mike's um, kind of uh, initial anxiety and his reluctance and just the fear of the unknown and I don't know what it's going to be and wanting to protect Vicky from heartbreak and everything and Vicky kind of drove him through it and steered him through it mm. and then they all vanished. Um, yep. just, just before you, you answer, like just oh, just, just before you answer, um, that uh, that Vicky Berry on the Book of Face also kind of posed that question as well. So th oh, th th now you're allowed to answer, sir. Yeah, I mean, I thought the storyline was great. I mean, it, it was one that needed addressing, and it was nice that they'd taken it with a with a couple which who you know you wouldn't normally associate with having having a Down syndrome child, or you wouldn't expect them to have a Down syndrome child, because it rounds the, the family, you know into a, a you know a family that has problems they you know they may be perceived as comic characters by you know some of the audience um but they actually are real really rounded people and they do have problems and uh, but also joys because there is joy in having a, a down syndrome child as i know i've got you know several friends who've got uh, uh, down syndrome children and the, the, I, honestly i've never met such happy families um there's so much delight um, in there, along with some of the pain as well. And Bethany, you know, when she was brought in, she was, we were told that she was not very high on the Down syndrome spectrum. So eventually this is something that would burn through. And uh, I mean, it's interesting that Coronation Street have done, you know, the same storyline and done it mm. extremely well. Um, so it, it's, it's something that, you know, could be treated. I mean, I just think, I don't know, I don't know why they really decided to, to move us away. I mean, perhaps they I don't know. You'd have to ask um, the editor that. I mean, it's his well, decision. Um, I absolutely thought it was nailed on uh, for Bethany to be there for the next twenty, thirty years. Yeah, because I, me too. you know, it was. 
to the to the listener, it was so obvious that this is a case of showing that somebody with Downs can actually be an integral part of the community and actually a benefit to society. It was going to be played out through this yeah. great couple who were going to be really good parents. And also the other thing which I thought was incredibly realistic about the portrayal uh, mm. was the fact that you were so anti having Bethany at first. Yeah. And I yeah. thought that was very true. Uh, you you know, and you said to Vicky, look, you know, I'm a man of a certain age. I can't be doing this at my no. time in life. But and yeah. she said, no, she really wanted this child. And, you know, and, and her being a, a tenacious mother and the fact that you loved her, you came round to it and then mm. you, lo- you loved your daughter. As it made little sense to anybody then that this storyline was dispensed with, because I think it's such a powerful one. Saying that there is no facility for... Uh, to be in a special school uh, uh, in in moving them away is is probably one I would question because I mean my real wife uh, she had um, two daughters both uh, disabled physically disabled and she fought like a tigress to ensure that they remained in ordinary education mm. you know when they wanted to put them in special schools with away from away from the public and i think that it's, it's a valuable story you know and there are a lot of people out there who are in similar situations either with downs down syndrome children or with uh, physically disabled mentally disabled sometimes uh children or ch- children with autism it's a part of society that i do i do feel does need to be addressed it's very close to my heart i was sad that they decided to uh, to move them move them out to birmingham so mm. basically gets them out of the village so you don't need to to uh, reference them, except in you know passing as they pop back in occasionally. Who knows what happen, might happen in the future? Well, well, but also, Vicky, Vicky was so at home in Ambridge, having having you know turned up yeah. in her ridiculous shoes at first and everything. But she absolutely fell in love with it, didn't she? And she was involved with every aspect of the community. And then to suddenly say, right, I've had enough of this. I'm going back to you know with sort of what appeared to be not much of a backward glance. You know, it's just yeah. very unrealistic. I thought, but. So, um, and I don't know. I mean, it's uh, we 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 are in the hands of the of the story writers and, and what they decide to do. You know, um, yeah. uh, it always have been. You know, and you, you you swing with the you swing with the with the punches. You swing with the uh, with the storylines as they come and go. And uh, um, who do you, who do you think knows Mike better, you or the person that writes Mike? Me, absolutely me, because Mike is part of me. He has to be. Um, I've grown up with a character and there have got to be so many aspects of me in that character. You know, I'm not saying I'm a grumpy old fart all the time, but I sometimes enjoy being a grumpy old fart <laughs> uh, uh, because that, that comes with the territory when you, when you get to a certain age and you're a gentleman uh, or not so much of a gentleman as me. Do you miss it? Yes, of course I do. Yeah, very much so. I love, love, I love being in the studio. I love the people I work with. You know, the cast are always really lovely. I mean, the, you sometimes don't see people for months, years on end. You know, and because you're doing the 24, 26 episodes in a week, and there are four a day, um, you might be in the nine o'clock, and somebody else might be in the you know eleven thirty. But you finish and gone before they arrive, uh, or you miss people by an episode. You sometimes don't have episodes with people for for months yet you you pick up when you get back together um as if you've never been away and that's the nature it's like being part of a giant extended family and um, to be separated from your extended family is a loss it's um you know you do feel it i mean i felt it keenly when when pam uh went off to uh new zealand and suddenly my wife of 35 years 
went, disappeared. And mm. She wasn't in the studio when I came back, you know, and it was very disturbing that she wasn't there. So, yes, you do you do feel like it is also a job. And so I'm not trying to get too, um, you know, uh, emotional about it, but it's a, it's a very special job. Um, it's a, a group of people that I've known and loved for years and years and years. And, um, um, and, and continue to enjoy listening to on the radio. Uh, when I'm not shouting at it like everybody else, so you know, <laughs> outy moments at the radio, you know, don't do it, you know, or it may be. I saw uh, Rachel Atkins the other day. Oh yeah, and uh, she sends her love, and she really oh. misses everybody, and she said, "I really miss Terry." Miss Rachel, I know. It's lovely. It was lovely. I, I, we just had such a ball playing. Um, <laughs> I was going to say we had such a ball playing with each other. No, she's such a and she's such a good actress. She's such a superb uh, radio actress. She's amazing. She is very much so. Yeah. Um, just to give us a kind of a sense of the span of time that you've been on on the series uh, again, there, Terry. Who was the editor when you first uh, donned the mantle of Mike? Uh, Tony Shrine. Um, and so, so how many editors did you go through? Uh, there was Tony, then I think it was Liz. Rigby, Liz Rigby, Neil Fraser, one, two, three, four. Uh, there have been various ins and outs of people in for a short period of time. Mm. Uh, it came in. Um, one, two, Vanessa Whitburn was yonks, wasn't she? Oh, yeah, she was there a long time. And Vanessa I'd worked with uh, a long time before uh, when she was on Radio Drama, when she was um, doing, um, just doing Radio Drama at Pebble Mill before she took over the Archers. Um, and well, when she was in charge of the Archers, she was also in charge of Radio Drama as well, so she dip back in occasionally and do it. It was great working with Vanessa in, in studio. She's such a good director mm-hmm. of radio. She really has got an ear for it, you know. Yeah, I really love those times. And I've got, in fact, I've still got a picture somewhere on my wall of, of a, an outside broadcast we did, because they were doing it in binaural stereo. So it had to be an outside, a real outside acoustic in order to do it. And we were doing the, the Golden Girls, the, the thing about the, uh, the Olympics. And we were doing it on the... Um, sports field at um at, uh, at the university and there's a um, there's a picture of her and it was a really windy day and very blustery and rainy and they've got the mic shielded by uh, umbrellas and there's vanessa with her back to the camera with this inside out umbrella and all the rest of us you know killing ourselves laughing and, um, <laughs> i'm on crutches because I, I ripped my hamstring string having to stamp as i went past the microphone um, um, the BBC should be very glad I can sue them for that but um, yeah uh, uh, yes there was Vanessa there was uh, Liz Rigby for a while there was um, uh, oh uh, Tony um, what's his name uh, William Smethurst um, uh, who came in uh, for quite a while and in fact was responsible for me leaving the programme for a short part, period of time um, because I got this job down at, at TVS at Southampton pre, pre-Doctor Who and I hadn't been in the Arches for nearly a year, you know, and I'd hardly been in it at all um, with with Bill. And then I got this job done. And then I got this call from the Arches office saying, we want you to do the, the you know, we want you in for an episode. And I can't do it. You know, so I'm, I'm down in Southampton. And Bill was on the, on, uh, Bill Smethers was on the phone saying, what's this? You know, I can't, can't do this episode. I said, no, but I've got this job in Southampton. He said, well, it's important. We have you back in. And I said, well, what do you call an important thing? He said, I said, story. He said, story and I want to run. I said, well, what's, you know, is it? How important is it? Is it going to be, you know, one episode, two episodes? He said, well, it could be six. 
and said, okay, so you want me to turn down 27 episodes of television for possibly six episodes of The Archers? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I can't already committed anyway. You know, so he said, oh, well, I'll have to recast you. I said, fine. And he kind of went, oh. But he did. Apparently recast me. I don't know who they recast. But, uh, so Mike wasn't Mike? Mike wasn't you for six episodes? Mike- for a very short period of time until they realised that wasn't going to work. And so he went silent again until Graham Harvey said, we've got to have the Tuckers back in because we've got the storyline about, you know, something something agricultural that yeah. needs specifically. So I then got this phone call saying, hey, would you like to come back into the arches? And I said, uh, yeah. I mean, actually, I was rather glad to have left at that time because Mike had become purely verbal scenery. He hadn't had a storyline in Yonks. And um, it was nice to come back in and actually have a storyline. Because storylines actually allow you to show an expanse of the character as I think yeah. just recently in, in, in recent events in, in Ambridge uh, currently mm-hmm. um, gives the actors a chance to flat, to, you know, flap their wings a bit and, and um, show more than just the day to day stuff, which everyone is very good at. And it requires a particular sort of actor to be able to produce the day to day minutiae without, you know, sounding totally bored. I, I came back into it then with, with Smethers. And he was in it for quite a while. He was in it quite a while before Vanessa came in. Um, people are married. So you've, you've seen off quite a few editors then, Terry? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the nature of the beast. You're going to because editors will come and go. They're not going to last the, you know, and if the character is long, long standing, you know, I mean, I, I when I've seen off as many as, as people like, you know, uh, June and, and um, Leslie Seward have, you know, mm-hmm. who've been there right at the beginning. But yes, yeah, the nature of the beast. You're going to editors will move on. They further their careers. They, you know, they choose to go a different direction or whatever it may be, or they, they just feel that they've done what they wanted to do with the program, and now it's time to to hand the baton on. It's uh, that's the nature of nature of broadcasting. What's your favourite Mike storyline or scene? You know, what's the, what's the scene that you kind of think, yeah, you know what, I, Terry Malloy, I, I, you did some good work there, sir. I know what mine is. Can I? I know mine? exactly what you're going to say. He's talking about his missus being dead and what it meant to him. Blah no, blah blah. No, it's Stop when it. he says the only person that would know which tie he should wear yeah, to Betty. Betty's funeral was Betty. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That made me cry my head off. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, I mean I don't think. Oh, I really nailed it there. I never do. And I, I sometimes don't like listening to myself because the, the nature of broadcasting is you're hearing something in your head that doesn't actually come through on, on radio, no matter how good you are at doing it. Uh, only a part of what you really intend to come through tends to come through sometimes. But, yeah, that, that scene with, with, um, with Brenda when he doesn't know what suit to wear. Yeah. Was very dramatic for us both because, uh, uh, bless her, Amy, her, her mother had died literally a year before. Um, oh really? And we, in fact, we, we didn't rehearse it at all. We said to them that we can't rehearse this. Can we just give us five, five minutes to sit here and think about it, and then we'll do it? And we did it, and they took it in one. Oh, oh God! I'm going to cry again now. Oh, yeah. No, it was a very, very strong emotional scene for me. Very much so. The one with 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 Vicky, where the whole episode was just Mike and Vicky. The entire episode was, you know, Mike and Vicky. terms with uh, the amniocentesis test. Absolutely, yeah. That I pulled over. I was driving the car down Chamberlain Road in Kensal Rise and I had to pull over and my eyes went moist. I'm a man, so I never cry, of course, but my eyes did go a little bit moist, Mr. Malloy, and I just thought that was absolutely uh, kind of radio gold. Oh, thank you. How kind. 
No, we had a whole load of people basically say the same thing. When are you coming back? When are you coming back? So it's Vicky Cole in Kenya, Kelvin Saxton uh, and Delise Tomlinson said, when are you coming back? But I, I think we know the answer, but let's hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, Michael come back when they decide there's a storyline for him to come back. And if Vicky and Bethany come back as well, then that's, again, a decision made by the uh, by the office. You know, it's not, not mine to make or demand or uh, anything else. You know, I'm... I'm uh, there to be used as uh, as Mike when they feel the storyline is right for him to be there, um, and how he comes back or when or where or what have you, um, I can't even begin to think. But um... uh, you got any uh, anything else to add there, Freeman? No, I think I'm done. Right. Well, um, I- I'm done too. Uh, so at that point, um, I think we should maybe go and hit those phone lines. Hello, Ambridge 3962. So who's first then, Freeman? Dustington Substingtons. She said... (laughs) (laughs) Hello, it's Dusty Substances here, the wrong sort of listener. Um, I'm coping better now that I'm not hearing the actual abuse. I think that's a positive thing. Um, I'm taking a deep breath and accepting that Anna Treboggan being a barrister specialising in domestic violence is nothing unremarkable at all for well certainly not for Ambridge is it I've sort of got my head around where Jess is that was a concern for quite a while I could not understand why Jess would want to have anything to do with Rob and hearing the two-hander made rather a lot of sense really so I was glad I'd heard that I'm still trying to sort out Ursula because I mean, maybe it's just that I'm being naive and there is probably a thread somewhere. But we go from early stages when Rob didn't want Helen to have anything to do with his mother at all. And there was the no show at the dinner party. And then we get Ursula turning up for weeks on end and Rob is in her thrall. And then pantomime Bruce turns up. Clearly Ursula is in thrall to the highly ridiculous but scary Bruce. So why would Bruce have let her be at Robin Helen's for so long? And why was she worse when he wasn't there than when he was? I'm really trying to sort that all out. Uh, yes, what the hell? Ursula's character arc. I didn't understand. If Bruce is like Bruce is, mm. that sounds like one of those ridiculous, if a woodchuck could chuck wood. If Bruce is like Bruce is, why would Bruce have let Ursula stay on for ages? Mm. He wouldn't have done. He'd have demanded that she came home. And Ursula was ni- was worse when Bruce wasn't there, was nicer when Bruce was there, or was she only nicer in comparison with horrible Bruce? Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> This Ursula thing, it's, it, it's like a Venn diagram of Archer's characters and Archer's plot, and you can see where it's all going. Then there's Ursula. Who's just like a little island on her own, twiddling round, just no relevance to anybody. No, it makes no sense. One minute she's the the most horrible person in the world, according to Rob. The next minute she's the only person in the world he trusts, and she's got to move in. And um, you know, it's just absolutely nuts. Doesn't make any sense. Mm, I don't I can know hear about it. What are you no, doing? No, I don't know about it not making any sense at all. I think. 
Uh, as we said and other people have said, this is you're supposed to see this as uh, Rob and Helen 40 years hence. Uh, and also that very obviously Ursula has been bullied, traumatised, is damaged because of Bruce. So she's one way when she's with him, another way when she's uh, not with him. However, um, she does share um, a lot of his, uh, even though she's a woman, his kind of misogynistic, let's say patriarchal views of the world. Uh, whether it is uh, sending your kids off to boarding school, but in terms of it being the right thing for them, even though Rob very clearly said he found it lonely and somewhat of a, a traumatising experience. Mm. You know, but she, he she... said it was better than being at home. He said, he said, because he said, well, let's face it, home wasn't exactly a picnic, was it? Or something like that. True that. But still, if the only way to extol the virtues of it was the fact that home was this loveless... Uh, cold place it's not really yeah you know, it's damning it with faint praise isn't it but but either way um i thought i thought it was understandable that uh she she becomes a shrinking wallflower if i'm not mixing my metaphors there uh when she's around her boorish husband and then she is slightly another person uh when when she's not you know i didn't think that that was necessarily so 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 unbelievable but as I kind of said, I think it was last week or the week before, there are little, you know, little shoots of um, humanity w with Ursula. And, you know, if we are going to say that Helen is um, is traumatised because of Rob, and very obviously she is, I think we have to recognise that the same thing has happened yeah. to Ursula. You have to. You know, yeah. you can't just say, well, she's an evil old witch. Maybe there's a bit of sort of um, Stockholm syndrome going on. I think you might be right there, Luce. Mm. Mm. Blythe Spirit. Oh, I love Blythe Spirit. Hello, Dumpty Dum, Blythe Spirit calling. Well, I've just done a marathon listen through from the day after the big Sunday episode through to Thursday of this week. Not heard the last one yet. I just wanted to say a few things. The first one is, I bloody love Kirsty. Isn't she a rock? I mean, after everything that she's been through with the Archer family, with Tom and with Helen, she'd have every reason not to give them a, a, an inch more. But She's been so supportive. She's kept everyone together. She's kept her head. And she's been absolutely amazing. If anyone had been through something as awful as what that family are going through right now, wouldn't you want someone like her on your team? I know I would. Also really pleased to hear that Carol Tregoran's daughter is interested in representing Helen at Crown Court. As a domestic violence and women's issue specialist, she is the ideal candidate to put forward a really strong defence for Helen. Um, and she will understand completely what she's been through. Uh, yes, Anna. She, she uh, Blood Spirit, big fan of Kirsty, big fan of Carol Tobogan's daughter, Anna. I d yes, I, I mean, we've got no idea whether Anna is actually as good as everyone says she is, but she just sounded calm and competent and she knew what she was doing. And mm. she wasn't hysterical like Pat, understandably hysterical, but still. Um, and, you know, she just sounded businesslike and professional and great. So hurrah for Carol Tobogan's daughter, Anna. Yokel Bear echoes this. And I too have great, he said, I've got great hopes for that woman. Me too. Yes, Maxine Peake in Silk. That's exactly how I'm thinking of her. Yep. Uh, and please come to the rescue. Um, 
Susie from Wisconsin says much the same that uh, she now wants to join Carol's coven. I do hope Carol's not. I don't. I do hope that Carol, the point of Carol was not just to have the daughter that saves Helen. I hope that Carol will continue to sort of be a thing in Ambridge. She won't now disappear. My work here is done now, like a superhero, and then just fly off uh, on her broomstick. Now you are still clicking. What I'm are you sorry. Clicking? I'm sorry. Sorry. Now we have first time caller in Aurora. Martin Greaves, who oh. he, editor. Martin here, Greavesy E17 on the Twitters and a first time caller in Get the admin out of the way. I live in London and I work for a small radio and TV outfit. I got into the Archers in the early 90s in Studio 3E at Broadcasting House when working on the radio for 7 o'clock news. And sometimes I was a bit slow turning off what came next when we finished at 5 past 7. And I just kind of got sucked in, really. I'm calling in because I have a long-range plot prediction. Helen is going to get off because Rob won't be able to control himself in court. And he's going to have a Jack Nicholson-style You're damn right I ordered a Code Red! outburst, at which point the prosecution will collapse and Helen will be free. I also imagine that Rob will not be especially respecting of a female barrister, which will further lead to his downfall. It could all turn out really rather well. So rather than coming over all these standards, I think that the archers will turn into a few good men. The only thing I'm not sure about is who's going to be Tom Cruise? Martin, for those that don't know, Martin Greaves is our tech expert, isn't he? He is. Um, and he, he is the one, when we talk about Derek in the back bedroom, it's Martin. But clearly it's not really Martin because Martin is not a right-wing pervert. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well... <laughs> well, is he? well um that's debatable but anyway he's not much like derek um well and he, if your stalin is going yeah. to be right wing isn't he if you're trotsky or lenin martin is going to be to the right wing in them yes so are you trotsky no i think we've already established i'm not trotsky i think we established <laughs> that fairly early on in the podcast <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay then. Um, so yes. So this is um, uh, his long-range plot. Helen's going to get off. Rob won't be able to control himself in court because he won't respect a female barrister, and he'll he'll lose it. I can really see that happening. Mm. Um, <laughs> Martin, we were doing. We were walking the dog on Sunday, and Martin told me this. Um, uh, the plot prediction mm. and then said do you know this is sounding so obvious to me now I don't think I'll even bother to ring in because it's blindingly obvious that's what's <laughs> going to happen <laughs> I and then think... I said to him about all the people the calls we get when, when people ring in and say like when we got when after Rob died after after Rob was stabbed mm. then we got all the calls we were going right what's going to happen is he's dead and hello I go and then and then two days later another call going hello it's me again forget that one actually hadn't died I think everyone thinks their plot prediction is so obvious they're not even going to bother saying it mm. <laughs> you think what no um I really don't want this show to go down the route of a procedural i really don't yeah um i enjoyed it in parts um with the you know understanding the process you know in parts i enjoyed it uh but we don't want it to go down that route but to actually hear rob's uh 
barrister go through with him the questions he'll be asked and for him to lose it and then to hear his barrister then try and coach him and say actually you can't say that you can't display uh, um, you know anger there or frustration you've got to be calm remember you are the loving husband it's actually be quite a great great bit of drama but you know I I don't want this to be reduced to uh, but I do want to see him taken apart by Carol Toboggan's daughter though listen absolutely we all do but that wouldn't happen in isolation taken apart (laughs) but that wouldn't happen in 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 isolation would it no he would have been trained and coached and you know there's there would be a point where uh, a question would be asked and you know that he would have lost it in the training but then he keeps it just about together yeah you know, and but then another question which he wasn't suspecting would come, and and that in and of itself would make for great drama. But I don't want it in the Archers. No, it doesn't feel Archer very Ambridge like. Yes, yes, exactly, mm. exactly. So thank you for your call, Martin Greaves. Do feel free to call in again. It's lovely to hear from you. <clears throat> Gillian. Hi everyone, it's Gillian from Gateshead. Just want to give you a quick podcast recommendation. The podcast called Crime Time. Um, it's an American legal current affairs. But that particular episode I want to recommend is the 6th of April. And it was all about domestic violence. But what was really interesting was the lady they had on was called Laura Richards. And she's from the UK. And she's the founder of a stalking charity in the UK, but she's also worked with the police a lot. And I think she's a criminal profiler. But in addition to this, she was talking about the conversations that are going on um, in the UK around domestic violence, particularly with the coercive control legislation coming out. And she did say that storyline in a big show called The Archers is contributing to this. So well done, Archers. And she was also saying that Whenever um, the profile of these issues are raised, people do come forward and get help. So I think that links into saying a big thank you to Goddess Steva. Um, it's people like her sharing their stories and, you know, hopefully giving courage and sort of confidence to other women or men uh, to come forward and seek the help that they need. So anyway, moving on. The next thing I'm going to mention is something I've been pondering, phoning up about for a while. Over the past year, when I've been listening to The Archers, some of the characters have said a few things that's got me thinking. And within the news about people having questionable tax affairs, I thought it might be a good opportune moment to mention it. Question marks have been raised in my mind around Lillian and her clothing allowance. Now, who's she employed by? Where's she getting the money from? Is this just handouts from Justin? Yes, Lillian and her clothing allowance. What? I think, yes, there are several people in Ambridge, as you say, who need urgent investigation by HMRC. Brian Aldridge, (laughs) for one. If he's not up to his neck in offshore accounts, I don't know who would be. Um, And yes, I'm still not entirely sure what Justin is paying Lillian for. She's not registered as a PR. Uh, she's a, a property company, which doesn't explain why she's been given a clothing allowance by, by somebody. And is that taxable? Who knows? Cosmo would know. What am I saying? And congratulations, John and Richard. Uh, um, John from Newcastle, this is, who is getting married on Saturday. Hurrah! Congratulations. And you will remain forever 
in uh, Dumpty Dum's uh, good books for throwing the owner of the house out of his own kitchen for laughing when Tony got stomped on by the bull. That was very funny. <laughs> did you see? I laughed when Nigel went off the roof. No, you never. I did. Did you? I did. The second I heard it once and went, <gasps> and the second time I laughed. Probably because I'd seen Twitter in between the first time and the second time. And also, I laugh when tension goes. Mm. And, uh, and, and, and because we'd had all this shake ambush to the core nonsense, um, <laughs> I was so keyed up about what it could possibly be. When mm. Nigel did his, ah, I was so sort of, it was so funny that it had happened and finished and all the tension had disappeared that I started giggling. Don't well. tell Graham Seed that. <laughs> I don't know why I think whispering on a podcast will work, but somehow I am always convinced that they, nobody will hear me if I whisper. Uh, they will, Lucy. Mm. Graham Seed won't. That's true because he, he still listen. thinks this, he still thinks this is a website, doesn't he? Bless <laughs> <laughs> him with a spoon. Hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling. Toss salads and scrambled eggs. Mercy. Greetings, Lucy, Royfield, Millie Bell, and all Dumpty Dummers around the world. It's Witherspoon and Angus Haggis here. On this beautiful spring Sunday afternoon, we've been pondering the ironies of life. Before the events of the 3rd of April, and we'll refer to all such dates as BS for a before stabbing, we would be so relieved and happy to hear an Archer's episode that was free of Rob and Helen. And now, since that date, and we'll assign any following date with the ending ASS, for after-stated stabbing, and an episode that doesn't include meaningful chatter about the incident feels, well, rather flat. Right now, I just can't get excited about Neil's existential crisis, the remake of the classic 1942 Hepburn and Tracy film, Woman of the Year, or Architectural Digest's rejection of Eddie's Shepherd Hut. Just give me more of Anna Tregoran's Avenging Defender. And why does it feel like in the English court system Helen is being presumed guilty and has to prove her innocence and not the other way around? And what are these bail houses? I don't believe we have them in America. And I still believe that Helen would be allowed to return home in the States, even with the presence of Henry. I wish we had an American legal eagle to weigh in on this. I must say that I cheered for Tom when he punched out Jazzer. You know, I've never been a big fan of Jazzer. His constant belittling of others reflects his own low self-esteem, but I don't give him a pass on the things he says. It was an interesting pairing this week of Jazzer and Susan's gossiping. Perhaps we should examine our own gender bias. We, the listeners, are quick to tr criticize Susan's malice, but Jazzer always seems to get away with it. On the other hand, Susan probably wouldn't have gotten a sock in the nose from Tom. My dear dog has just barfed on the living room rug, so I better take care of it. It's Witherspoon and Angus Haggis signing off. Talk to you next week. Hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling. Toss salads and scrambled eggs. Mercy. We have BS before stabbing. Uh, ASS. <laughs> I know where you're going with this, with a spoon. Um, I disagree. I'm, I'm forever disagreeing with with a spoon. I'm sorry, with a spoon. I love the fact. I love the fact that we're now having flat episodes that where I don't have to go lurching to the to the to the kitchen work surface in terror because we've gone back to gaslight cottage. 
it's I love it. I love it that all the tension is now gone. My head is now there are big parts of my brain that have not been opened up to the archers for a long time. I am now worried about Neil's blooming eggs and uh, the shepherd's hut and whether or not Linda will burn it down. Um, and the fact that they get that Ed suggested to paint it in matte black paint, and I think that would probably be flammable or something. Um, and yes, I, I, I'm loving it, and I'm actually still feeling that somehow, although it's awful, Helen is safer in prison than she was when she was with Rob. Um, and so I feel like I can't do anything about it now because <laughs> clearly I could do something about it when she was with Rob. Um, but yes, it all just seems so much nicer now and I'm enjoying it a lot more and I've been much more cheerful this week because it's broken. It's like a storm breaking. Because I think dusty she's substance. behind bars. Yes. Yes. Seriously, yes. Because a woman who's been traumatised uh, is behind but bars. What's happened? I hate tension. I hate knowing a thing and the other people don't know the thing. It's like dusty substances is the same. She feels the same. Yeah, you ask her. Um, and yes, Jazza is was behaving like a bit of a dick, but he's belittle. And, and as Susan said, he's only saying what everyone else thinks. Uh, you know, he's just saying what he's just saying in his way what Peggy Woolley thinks. Um, but it Jazza part for me part of the the humor and the love I have for Jazza, the humor of Jazza and the love I have for him is that he doesn't take Ambridge seriously for a second. You're still clicking, Royfield, and I'm going to drive over to wherever you are and punch you in the bush unless you stop. Um, he Jazza was brought up in a poverty-stricken family with alcohol and drug abuse and God knows what in a high-rise, and he comes to this little rural idyll and... He is hugely amused by their problems, in inverted commas, apart from Helen, which is a genuine problem, obviously. But, you know, about, oh, the window boxes and, oh, the flower and produce and who's going to win this and win that. And, you know, he finds it all funny. Jazza's us. Jazza is us. Jazza is snarky and cynical. And Jazza is the Archer's Twitter feed. Um, And that's why we love him. But Jazza isn't quite you because you understand this world. Well, so does Jazza. I mean, he's li- he lives in it. No, but, but he doesn't take it seriously. Mm. No, he doesn't take it seriously. But you understand the nuance and, and the rhythms of it. And, and you described um, him growing up in a world which was very alien to Ambridge. Mm. And the world that you grew up in was Ambridge. Yeah, more, more Ambridge, yeah. Yeah. But... From maybe maybe from an urban perspective, when you look back at Ambridge, that's what Jazza is. Mm. All right, maybe. All right, you're still clicking. I still. Um, yeah, come on, round and punch me in the mush. Hi, it's Susie from Wisconsin. Just calling in to say really quick that um, meeting Anna Tregoran makes me wanna join Carol's Coven even more than I did before. And now we're on to emailer in us. Oh, good. All right. Now we have one from a virtual villain now we're not allowed to say this person's name because this person is um well i'll explain why in the in the message 
She said, hello, you too. I'm a long-time lurker, but first-time emailer in I have been listening to The Archers since childhood because my mother listened every day. I guess I just absorbed it. I am a diplomat. So when I'm overseas, it provides a real slice of home. Not sure my career experience in international relations is going to be of use to Dumpty Dummers, but do feel free to call on me if Ambridge becomes the centre of a geopolitical crisis. FYI, <laughs> <laughs> Ambridge is always at the centre of a geopolitical crisis. It's one big geopolitical crisis. I'm prompted to email in for the first time, not because I've got insights on current plot or any complaints, but because I have a question for you and your listeners. Misogyny and knife crime are popular themes in Games of Thrones. So in honour of the upcoming season six, I would like to know what you and your listeners think the sigil and words would be for the families in the Archers. For example, Aldridge. Uh, sigil, a pile of gold resting on a herbal lay. And the words are, we reap what we sow. Uh, the Bridge Farm Archers, sigil, an organic bridge squashed by an angry bull. <laughs> and the words, were we blind? Um, and Aldridge <laughs> Jr., sigil, a yurt set against a backdrop of backdrop of blue sky and fluffy white clouds. And the words, ask daddy and ye shall receive. I do think Kate Aldridge is probably a very Game of Thrones type character. She's, who's that crazy one? Is it, Cer- Cer- what's she called? Cersei? Oh, the mother. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Off her head. She's just like Kate, I think. I even imagine Kate looking a bit like that. Mm. She kind of does, actually. Yeah. Mm. But then you're saying that Kate has basically had sex with her brother, so that would be... Chris. Well, who knows? That could be what made Chris lose his ability to speak. The shock. Hang on. Not Chris. What are you talking about? I said Adam. Sorry, Adam. Oh, blimey, that would have been a shock. (laughs) (laughs) yes i was thinking of chris because yesterday simon was playing christopher cross Mm. and i suddenly thought of chris on the cross and you going crisscross everybody jump when we did the podcast Mm. and then thinking where the hell is chris chris and alice we've not seen them for years have we kind of in his blacksmith's forge yeah and his apron and now tells but where is he we just said lucy Hmm? We've just said. In his blacksmith's forge. Yes, but he's not, though, is he? Nobody's been to the blacksmith for yonks. No one's mentioned it. We haven't even had, oh, I've just had a chat with Chris and he said, get out my forge or anything. Is you know, <laughs> nothing. Not a sausage. Mm. Right. Next one. Andrea Melling. Pat subject. Pat and Tony are morons and terrible parents. <laughs> I think we know where you're going with this, Andrew. I think you may have given it away. They are trying to, they are in fact supporting her abuser without bothering to establish facts. They also still haven't told Peggy. They're also mind, uh, that's me, not her. Uh, They're also mind-numbingly dumb. They have been told Rob is violent and they know that their previously gentle daughter was moved to stand in the presence of Henry and have been told by Henry that he's reliving being chased by an ogre. But they can't figure out that Rob might have been attacking Henry. The icing on the cake was their plan to send poor slow-witted Henry back to school with a load of ridiculous lies in his head to face a room full of tabloid-briefed classmates. Poor slow-witted Henry. I know. (laughs) Yes, Rob! One can imagine Zandy having a field day with your mum is a psycho who will be locked away forever. Also, my mum told me to stay away from you because you're a psycho's child and clearly not right in the head yourself. 
Ah, what they should be doing is telling Henry that the police won't let mummy come home because they don't know that daddy was mean to mummy and that he can help mummy by telling the police about anything daddy has done to upset him or mummy. Henry is facing being under Rob's control if the truth doesn't come out. So he really needs to get on board with telling what he knows, even though he's a bit dim. His future is on the line and he needs help in realising this. He's five. He is five. <laughs> Come on, Andrew. Logically five. five in sound effect terms, two and a half. <laughs> uh, yes, I don't. I think he's a little bit small to understand that his future's on the line. But I'm, <laughs> I'm really not sure. I, I agree that P- Pat and Tony, they just don't know what the bloody hell they're playing at. Tom seems to be the only one who's kind of being remotely sort of uh, sensible with Henry. But all he does is just wander past and go, you all right, Henry? Yes. Right, and off he goes again. Oh, that's a nice picture, Henry. What have you drawn? Oh, yes, look, mummy's stabbing daddy. That's lovely, yes, well. Um, yeah. Um, Andrea also did her dream Ambridge dinner party. She said her favourite character is tricky, but if Usha took me on as her new tenant at Blossom Hill Cottage, once she'd given it a quick wipe down, the people I'd invite for my housewarming would be Jim for the chat, Ian, because he could do with a night out, Brian... Yes, where is Ian? <sighs> Brian, because he'd bring a good bottle of plonk. Sabrina, also for the chat. Lillian, obviously. And Elizabeth, in hopes of a return invite. Also, I might invite <laughs> Alice Chris, because it would be good to catch up. And if anyone's got an address for him, Matt, in case a nice dinner of poached salmon and apple pie and a few glasses of Brian's wine would get him back together with Puscat. Oh, Yeah, not sure she'd have him, but anyway... She so would, you know. If he came back, she absolutely would have him back. <sighs> yes. Uh, right, and that's it. End of email or in a rose. Ooh. All right. Oh, do you have a forensic scientist that we're talking to? We do, we do. Um, she's, like, properly big in the world of blood spatter. And uh, so, yes. So now um, let's go over to her. She's somewhere in Southampton. <laughs> The success or failure of any criminal investigation often depends on the recognition of physical evidence left at a crime scene and the proper analysis of that evidence. Crime scenes that involve bloodshed often contain a wealth of information in the form of bloodstains. The pattern, size, shape and the location of such stains may be very useful in the reconstruction of events that occurred especially if they occurred in Blossom Hill Cottage. So it was that in mind that dum-de-dum listener and all-round clever bod, the scientist from Southampton contacted me on the Twitters with some vital evidence. How are you, scientist? I'm well, thank you. And yourself? Yeah, not too bad. But before we get into all of that, how does somebody become a blood spatter expert? Um... Mostly you would study sciences at school, mm-hmm. possibly go to university, particularly these days you would get a degree and then get a job with a forensic science provider. Okay, so I'm imagining that in Southampton it's a bit like Miami, Florida, uh, <laughs> the sun shines all the time, Wait. you work in the police department and you kind of like hang out with like Dexter. Would that be an accurate portrayal of your day-to-day job? Um, as you might imagine, I don't watch too many of the telly programs, and Dexter, I think, is a murderer, so I wouldn't hang out with him. <laughs> but he's very good at determining like blood spatter. 
oh, okay, maybe he is. <laughs> no, I don't watch those sorts of things. Um, and typically, uh, the crime scene investigator would attend a scene. So you might have somebody collecting evidence. So somebody might go to Blossom Hill Cottage and rather like Harrison did, realize that they need somebody else to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and then a scientist, a specialist might be called to go and look at the scene separately from the crime scene investigator who would be perhaps collecting evidence at the scene. Very simply, what does the examination of shapes and the location of the patterns of bloodstains kind of tell us in terms of rudimentary what has actually happened? You know, what can we determine? What would you determine from the blood splatters of Rob Titchener all over that kitchen? So really there are lots of different types of blood spatter. Most of us will have experience of cutting our finger or having a nosebleed and we know that blood travels quite easily. Um, if it's falling just from a, maybe a nosebleed, it might fall onto the floor or onto other surfaces and leave nice big fat round stains. If it continues to drip into those wet spots of blood, it might make secondary spatter, so little smaller spatters that would be from the result of dripping blood. If someone punched me in the nose and caused my nose to bleed, I hope nobody does, but if somebody did, and then they continued to punch me because I was really annoying, then that spatter might move um, around the room rather than fall on flat on the floor. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And interestingly, you called it blood spatter because that's actually how... Um, you gave me a bit of a slap round the chops uh, <laughs> metaphorically, didn't you? So um, for the good and listeners... There's lots, of, there's lots of posters out there that say it's spatter, not splatter. So spatter refers to more the small types of blood droplets, whereas splatter might be, for example, a large amount of custard falling on the floor. Which is very apt for the whole scene in Blossom Hill Cottage. That's right. Okay, so so this is what we kind of think that's happened in our mind's eye. Helen has given Rob a stab in the guts. He staggers. And then there was a second time where she kind of went in with the knife again. So knowing that, could we kind of work backwards? And could you tell us what the distribution of blood would be, what you would expect to see? That's a really good phrase. A lot of the time the scientists would consider what might I expect to find mm -hmm. if this is what's happened. And the scientist often isn't writing the story. They're considering what the science or what the, the um, staining might look like given what the prosecution says versus what the defence has said. So they're considering the likelihood of the findings all the time. Mm -hmm. In a stabbing situation, you might not get a lot of actual spatter because if you stab somebody, they might not bleed immediately and they might be incapacitated. So they would bleed from their wound mm -hmm. and any spatter that you see would be, like you say, as a result of either them moving around or somebody moving around in any blood that's been shed. We know that Rob was lying on the floor and that's the reason why Helen thought that he was dead. And she does say to Henry, or she did say to Henry, Daddy is just having a sleep. So there's going to be a pool of blood. I'm presuming then that would have gone over a lot of the blood spatter. Or would you still be able to determine things from a pool of blood over spatter? You're right. If there's quite a large amount of bloodshed over any spatter that's there, then it can be quite difficult. Blood spatter can travel quite a distance, but I perhaps might not expect to see lots of spatter at a stabbing scene. 
Um, and similarly, I guess he was wearing clothing, or he might have been wearing clothing when he was stabbed, and so mm. his clothing might have absorbed quite a lot of blood. So there might not be as much as the television leads you to believe that there might be. Okay. Would you be looking at the evidence on the floor on various surfaces to determine if there's any kind of struggle and then also you'd be looking at their clothes as well I take it and also Helen's clothes. Yes and Kirsty's clothes were recovered as well weren't they because she was present at the scene and so the, the, um, the police and the investigators have to consider that actually Helen and Kirsty might not be telling the truth and they might have worked together to to um, elicit his fate so mm -hmm. It's important that they keep an objective mind, and certainly the scientist has to keep an objective mind. But the scientist would also consider blood on other items. So there was talk quite quickly of the, the marks and finger marks on the knife. So the marks in, in blood on the knife could be quite interesting. But bearing in mind that the fingerprints might not be very useful on items in the house because they both live there. I know you're not um, a lawyer or, or a barrister. But looking at the kind of weight of evidence against Helen, do you think she's going down for a long stretch? <laughs> it's difficult for us to tell, isn't it? Because at the moment, she's annoyingly for a listener just saying no comment. So she appears not to be trying to help herself. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping for her sake that um, other people step up to the fore, the fore and, and support her to support what's actually been going on. We're, we're in the privileged position of hearing what's gone on behind closed doors, whereas obviously in, in real cases like this, that's not often the case. So it'd be nice to see Jess turning up and, and maybe Ian realising what's going on. There's been hints about the sort of person Rob is, but mm. it's those right people to step forward. But yeah, I mean, she's in a, a sticky predicament at the moment. You're very good. Sticky predicament. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Think of it like that, but yeah. Um, it's difficult to say, sticky predicament. It is, it is, but you, but you did it. You. Um, so when you've looked at uh, a crime scene, is it very easy then to basically go home and then switch on the archers at seven o'clock? And let's take Rob and Helen and um, put them completely to one side. If you've dealt with a scene where there's obviously been um, a murder and, and there's kind of blood everywhere, is it very easy then just to say, well, this is work and when I go home, I can leave that completely behind? I think it's essential really um yeah it's it's fair to say the question you get most asked when you say what you do for a living is oh that must be really interesting but occasionally people say I bet you've seen some really horrible things haven't you and you know you do get to see the side of the world that, that most people don't see or only see in a sensationalized or a dramatized way mm -hmm. so yeah I think um, I've always tried to think of it as perhaps you're in the position to be able to try and help someone who's had a difficult time or something awful has happened to them um, but yeah I think you go you go completely crazy if you kind of couldn't separate your work from from real life or, or from listening to the archers I mean I've listened to the archers for as far as I can remember really certainly about more than 20 years whilst living you know um, away from my family home but I first started listening because it made me feel like I was at home because my mum was a listener so mm -hmm. And just to get back into the gory business of blood spatter, what else do you generally find in blood spatter? Because I'm presuming that if someone gets stabbed in, in the guts, that's kind of the bowel, isn't it? So I'm presuming that all manner of nasties are flying out all over the place. I suppose it's possible, and I guess it depends on the extent of the injuries, but it's not something I've seen commonly. Okay, 
All right, so that's just me with my lurid imagination. <laughs> you go right ahead. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, this is, it's all about painting pictures, isn't it? And, and obviously the pictures I've painted about this is just a little bit too vivid. Uh, but scientists from Southampton, um, thank you for helping us to understand the forensic science of blood spatter. And I'll definitely make sure that next time I do uh, a dum dum title which has that word in, I won't use the L. It won't be blood spatter. Thank My wrist much. has been slapped. Think of custard. And that's a perfect end. Think of custard. <laughs> You're good. You've done this stuff before. <laughs> hey, that was proper illuminating. That was Lucy. Yeah. Learn loads. Learn loads. Um, but uh, why don't we all cogitate on and ruminate on actually what we've uh, learned there, folks, by taking five, having a quick sojourn, coming back the other side with a bit of Millie Bell and Tweets of the Week. It's the story of a cultural superpower that danced and sprinted its way to success. It brought the world reggae, Colin Powell, Rastas, Hip Hop, Bob Marley, and much more. Its story is... Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Talk to you in full color for your podcasting ears. It's the story of how Jamaica conquered the world.
Search for it on iTunes, How Jamaica Conquered the World. It's probably the best least known podcast in podcastdom. Search for it today. Nineteen fourteen, June, Sarajevo, the heir to the throne of Austria Hungary, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, assassinated, killed by a Serbian nationalist. About six weeks later, World War breaks out. Germany, Austria, Hungary, Russia, France, Britain, everyone is drawn into it starting in August. And then, will America be drawn in? Listen to the first show exclusively on Mixcloud today and subscribe to us on iTunes beginning January the 18th. From Washington to Obama, 10 American Presidents, the new podcast from Royfield Brown. Do you have a National Trust sticker on your car? Do you think you could be best friends with Kath Kidson? Do you spend hours wandering around the airport looking for an organic quinoa cafe because you refuse to go to Burger King? Then Sarah Smith Cloths are for you. Available from Sainsbury's for the Posher Washer. Proud sponsors of Dumpty Dum. I've just had a look at the Dumpty Dum shop. They've got no tracksuits, but they do do t-shirts, which are very flattering. Nice if you want to show off your figure a little bit. Nick couldn't carry one off, of course, but I can. So Royfield has asked me to find out from everyone here tonight, where and when do you listen to Dumpty Dum? Hello, this is Titian. I usually listen on my commute from Sirencester to Oxford or in the bath. Hi, it's Luke. Uh, I normally listen when I'm working, which is uh, gardening or painting and decorating. I mostly listen to Dumpty Dum on the train coming up from Winchester to London. I am Sam. Thank you. You're welcome. Greetings again, all Dumpty Dummers. It's Witherspoon here in the greatest city west of the Atlantic to tell you that as part of the Queen's birthday celebration, and I don't mean the second most populous borough of New York, we're going to be receiving a visit from Dumpty Dum royalty. Royfield Brown himself is going to be stopping in Gotham. We will have a grand old Dumpty Dum time on Monday, May 2nd, gathering at 7 p.m. at the Norwood Club, which coincidentally is owned by Handsome Hubby. So Americans, Canadians, and everyday country folk of any other nation, please join us. The address is 241 West 14th Street. And yes, Angus Haggis will be making a special appearance. G'day, everyone. Well, the stats that I get sent by Facebook every week tell me that in the last week, our stats haven't been quite so busy. But that's absolutely not what I've seen. I can tell you it's been very busy as far as I can see. On our forum, there's been a lot of conversation on a wide range of topics. Some people are giving the big thumbs up to Anna Tregoran. Someone has suggested, uh, Jim O'Hara suggested Rob's Revenge. Henry is screwed. Jim O'Hara also suggested that Jazza goes from the guy everyone likes to ignorant dickhead. Another thread talks about plot holes with Rob's phone. And Alison Johnson was asking what's going to happen about Boston Hill Cottage. And does, uh, Tom, Tom Williams was asking, does anyone else think Bruce might be another Rob? Lots of robust conversation happening there about all the, all the uh, plot lines at the moment. So if you go to dumptydum.com forums, you can get involved with our many listeners there. And we do like to see you. And I know that both Royalfield and Lucy B do drop in from time to time. So it's a great way to keep in contact. 
On our Facebook page, we have been asking a number of questions, perhaps less intense. Uh, should Bert finish the Edmobile if the brothers are losing interest was one of our questions. And Tessa Herring said, I love Bert. And if those fair brethren don't start appreciating him, I'm going to smash all their eggs. Okay, then. <laughs> Joe Jackson said, yep, then headhunt Josh and Rex, leaving Toby high and dry. And Karen Cunningham said, I lost interest a long time ago, which is really sad because I just love Bert myself. Uh, we also asked whether Alistair started, has he started an invisible veterinary service? When did we last hear him speak? And there's a lot of discussion about that with uh, lots of other people who haven't been heard from for a while being uh, mentioned. So if you would like to get involved in that discussion, and I really hope you do, then you would maybe be worthwhile to go to that thread and get involved. Uh, the Ballad of Helen Titchener by Paul Slade and sung by Philip Lyons has been posted up uh, on our Facebook page. So if you'd like to hear that, it's really good. Go and have a listen there. We also are starting something new, uh, which we're going to trial. So on the Facebook page or the forum each week, I will ask you a question, which would be great if you could respond to and whichever one gets picked will be put to the podcasters and also I hope to Witherspoon. And the idea is that it's just a way to get to know your podcasters uh, in a, with you asking the questions rather than from the topics in the storyline each week. Uh I had a little joke, which I thought was going to go mental on every Facebook page, and it didn't, so I just had to say it. Neil seems to be suggesting that Josh should put all his eggs in one basket. Uh, Go me. I'm hilarious. Uh, Okay, maybe not. And we also asked uh, whether the – I was really confused. After the big talk that Ruth had had with David pointing out that um, David doesn't discuss things with her before making decisions. I was really surprised uh, when David agreed to lend Pip 15 cows without discussing it with uh, Ruth first. And it would appear that many of you agreed. And it's a very long thread. It's actually very good and shows more insight than even I had. And I think it, if you would like to get involved with that, I really encourage you again to get involved on that website or on that thread. We hear from Glyn Fullerlove, Emma Paget, Rachel Louise, Heidi Griffiths, Sarah Harding, Anthony Ogden, Tessa Herring, heaps of people. So again, another great way to get to know some of the other listener winners. And we really are um, a kind of group, aren't we? So let's get to know each other. So... Uh, with all that having been said, I nearly run out of time. So I would just like to encourage you, please, to get involved in the forum and or our Facebook page. So that's dumptydum.com or uh, just uh, look for Dumpty Dum on Facebook. And in particular, look out for the questions that I'll, tr- I'll try to remember to pose every week to and get involved in asking Royfield and Lucy V and Witherspoon something that you would like to know about them. And our question for this week was, uh, if you had a part in uh, The Archers, what part would you like? And to be honest with you, I'd just like to be a teacher who really enjoys uh, teenagers because that's what I do and I don't hear enough of that on The Archers. So a bit boring, I know. I'm sure the others will come up with something better. But until next week, hooroo. I would be Ed Grundy's love interest really Mm. so you want him to be all all naughty behind emma's back yes or do you think that your charms could while him away from her 
Oh Bearing no, I don't. In mind, I don't. She's no, 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 half no, 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 the no. age of you, Lucy. Yeah, I don't. I, no, I, it's. Uh, he doesn't have to speak or anything, um, uh, and I certainly don't want him forever or anything like that. But just as a kind of a fling. Really. Yeah. Or Chris Carter. Hmm. So you, you you've got your cougar boots on then, have you? Yeah. Or I would quite like to be Jim's platonic housemate. You know what, now you're talking. If I was on, if I was a character on The Archers, I would actually want to be um, some kind of um, academic, I know people will laugh, who could actually hang out with Jim and we could talk Roman history and stuff. That would be most excellent. I would love that. Yeah. That would make me happy. Yeah. But I don't know if I'd make for good drama, though. You just chatting on about Roman Britain. (laughs) Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, the uh, the Diocletian reforms of the Roman <laughs> Empire. <laughs> no, you know, the, the, you know, the, the ramifications of the Tetrarchy. Uh, no, I it, hear it, people switching off all over the country, Royfield, at the mm, prospect of that. Yeah, it wouldn't make for good drama. Uh, so I would be, I'd hang out with Jim Lloyd and you'd get shagged by Chris Carter. Yeah. Cool. In the forge. Up his apron. (laughs) (laughs) Inspired by Doc Martin's retired psychiatrist Aunt Ruth, played with such delicious deadpan by Eileen Atkins, I would be Jim Lloyd's equally erudite but less pedantic and annoying psychiatrist brother who is retired to Ambridge. I, of course, would strike up a romance with Carol. Thank you for that, Miss Bell. Um, Lucy. Yep. Why don't you hit us with some tweets of the week? All right, then. Jane Bramley. Peggy seems more upset that Helen's missed out on a limo ride than that she stabbed Rob multiple times. (laughs) Uh, Paul Truman. Hero of the hour, Paul Truman. Helen won't be able to supply cheese to the Borsetshire Businesswoman of the Year Awards. Shit just got real. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jim Irving said Bert's <laughs> sorry Bert's cracking on with his roof struts a difficult dance move to master with the risk of slipping on a ridge tile <laughs> um, a new one for us fairy baselet said hedgerow omelette will it be sprinkled with twigs and bird shit and tweet of the week <laughs> Possibly one of the most sinister things I've ever been forced to imagine from If We Had Any Ham, you said, plot prediction. Henry does grow into a dark and troubled adult and they keep him talking in the same voice. All white! (laughs) (laughs) That is horrifying. Hey, Lucy. What? This has been a good one, hasn't it? It's really nice yeah. having the actors back on. I know we've missed them. No, we, we <laughs> have, we have. You know, it's just, yeah, just me talking to you gets a little bit monotonous after the hundredth and seventh time. <laughs> um, but folks, if you want to share in your delight in having Mister Malloy on our show, why don't you go to dumdydum.com where you can go onto our forum and you can say so you can say we enjoy listening to Terry Malloy talk about all things Ambridge and a little bit kind of Doctor Who as well um, currently on the forum the debate is 
Jazza goes from the guy everyone likes to ignorant dickhead. And? Rob's revenge. Henry is screwed. Both of those forum posts were started by Jim O'Hara. And Does all... anyone else think Bruce might be another Rob? It was also started by Tom Williams and... Celeb appearances. By Jolene. So you can go onto dumdydum.com, go and partake in the forum and also visit our shop. Uh, but Lucy... Mm. <laughs> I don't want to have to sing in front of Terry. It's embarrassing. Just sing a little no. bit louder. Sing a little bit louder, Lucy. Go on. No, no. Make your dogs bark or something. Yeah, make the dogs bark. Hey! News, 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 reviews. There you go, did it. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for having me. All the best. No, no, no. No, no, Thank you for goodbye. I'm not saying thank goodbye, thank you. I'm just saying thank you for diverting Royfield so I could do a very quick song when no one heard. Oh, right, okay. You're not gone yet, Mr. Malloy. From Blighty, we have a review from... Wistan 2. Who opined... It just keeps getting better and better. Uh, Xenophilia. Who wrote It's Like an Ambridge Addiction Patch. TimboQ666. Says that they love, love, love this podcast. I'm not listening. Who called the podcast a five-star twisted uterus. And... (laughs) Tessa Herring. (laughs) Who has finally found her kind of people. And from the colony that got away... Gone Girl. Gave us five stars and then some. Now, folks, if you'd like to help keep our little show on the road, there are a couple of ways this can be done. You can donate by hitting the donate button on our website, which is over to the right, or... You can go to patreon.com, search for Dumpty Dum, and you can donate $2 a show, which is about pound thirty. And we would like to thank... Jim, Irvin and Silver Girl for joining the ranks of the Patreons this month. Now, folks, remember to get in contact with us. You need to send us a voice message via SpeakPipe on our website, as Mr. Malloy did this week. Or you can call us on 0203 to leave us a telephonic message if your computer is up the fritz. Now, on social media, you can find us specifically uh, me, where I'm at Royfield, or the pair of us, we were at Dumpty Dum. Uh, Sarah Smith at Sarah underscore Smith, Harriet at Shambridges, or Terry Malloy at... Tucker's Patch. Hey. Um, on the Book of Face, where we have some 1,100 like lurkers just type in dum-de-dum, and then you'll just go find the like lurkers and join in the fun there. And at that point, it's just about the end of the show. Mr. Malloy, uh, is there anything you'd like to say to the great British public? Actually, to, to, to the planet, because we've got listeners all over the place listening to this thing. Um, anything you'd like to say pe- to the people before you go? What you're working in, what you're working on now, what's happening next? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm I'm carrying on doing lots of um, uh, big finish audios and uh, audio books that I'm reading and spending a lot at the moment spending a lot of time chasing around the planet doing Doctor Who events. So I suppose mm-hmm. as Davros would say, it is time for the planet to be exterminated. <laughs> <laughs> Already inhabited. <laughs> 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 Thank you very, very much, Terry. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Royfield. Are you going to be still doing this when you're on the other side of the world, then? Roy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not going to stop. I've done, we've done shows with me in Toronto. We did a whole load of me in San Francisco at the start of the year and also last year because I was there for, for three months. So, yeah, it, it buggers Lucy up uh, more than me because I 
generally do it around about the same time, which is about you know this time you know, nine between nine and ten on a Monday. But then it means it's four o'clock plus for Lucy or so. But um, yeah. But no, which I, kind of means that I tend to get interrupted slightly more by people going, "Can I have a sandwich or something?" when they come pottering in after school. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so when are you going over there? Uh, two weeks time just less than two weeks so that i fly the 30th of april go to new york um mm. gonna be there for four days and actually there's gonna be a little bit of a dum dum meetup over there actually oh. um one of our one of the listeners with a spoon who's this new york psychiatrist so that'll be nice and i'll go to toronto see the kids for a little bit um yeah. and then i go to my new home which will be san francisco um absolutely well listen thank you for 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 doing this and uh, i know we've been threatening it for such a long time and uh you know it's going to be a good one and um i know that we're going to have loads of extra listeners this week because you're on okay lovely well hello to everyone bye to everyone and hopefully meet you again on the airwaves at some point and thank you for having me on your airwaves and uh all the best with it well yeah listen well uh you know again thank you and I, you're going to be back, aren't you? I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, the more when I was whittering on and then you were talking about the whole kind of Bethany storyline, the next editor's got to just say, well, this is just su- such a wrong move and, you know, to contrive a way for the three of you to, to come back. Well, that's whoever the next editor's is decision. Um, and uh, we'll see how it runs. Well, my fingers are crossed. Are your fingers crossed, Lucy? Yep. Good. Certainly are. Yeah. All right. Terry, thanks a lot, mate. Pleasure. Take care. Nice. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, 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 Bye. Shepherd's Hut. What? We didn't talk about the Shepherd's Hut. Well, who cares? I know, but isn't it nice to be able to not care? And I'll tell you what was nice as well for me in that whole thing is that... Eddie's actually done a decent job because I thought it was going to be some bodge thing. You know, that's the grunt. Well, it was three times until she said she wasn't going to pay him. Yeah, but now she's just being stupid about the bloody chimney. Yeah. You know, and... And also, it's a Grundy. If she'd wanted artisan, you know, she's lived in the village for long enough to know that, you know, you're you're not going to get exactly what you want from the Grundies because you're going to get, you know... Well, aren't you then just paying up to the stereotype now? Yeah. Shame on you. Shame on <laughs> but you. But it's true. Come on. This is, you know, 25 years of listening of Eddie repeatedly, you know. Well, it made no sense. Put it, put in, putting it like that, it made no sense that she asked him to do it. Yeah. You know, there's Especially Robert. Especially when Bert's doing this fantastic. Bert's spending more time on a bloody trolley for chickens mm. than, and more effort than, than Eddie is on, on her flipping well, no, to be fair to Eddie, he's done a decent job. And every and, and if Linda says, Eddie, that looks really good, apart from the chimney, of which then Ed says, just paint it matte black. Yeah. He's done a bloody good job. Come on. But now he's got to find someone called Matt Black to paint it. <laughs> <laughs> just paint it matte black. <laughs> Wasn't he a DJ in cold cut? I don't know. Doctor in the house. Wait a minute. I'm going to have to Google Your pop culture, I'm not. That's not my department. Uh, Wait a minute. Matt Black. I'm pop psychology and overblown classical references, I am. Are you? 
Yeah, your, ge- your geography, history, and uh, pop culture. Basically, what you're saying is you're everything that's kind of cerebral and high and high culture. No, history and geography—that's pretty cerebral. Mm. Matt Bax, a photographer from Famous California. Former. You'd probably quite fancy him. He looks somewhat insipid and white to me. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean he looks white? You mean he is white? Insipid and white. Ah, okay. Cold cut. I was right. Matt Bax, cold cut. There you go. I told you you were you were pop culture. Hey. No flies on you, eh? Hey. Goodness, he's old though. He's 55 now. Wow. Do you remember Cold Cut Doctor in the house? Nope. Oh, come on. Yaz, the only way is up. Oh, yes, I know that. No, Doctor in the house wasn't it wasn't him. I got that bit wrong. Doctor in the house was that uh, weird mashup with uh, the Doctor Who theme tune. House oh. music, kind of late 80s. But the only way is up. Was uh, Cold Cut. Mm. Matt Black takes me back. All right, goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) See you then. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Bye. Helen's heart always got damaged. She never had much luck with men. Wormed his way into her head Told her 
Tune in.